Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the internet looking for interesting books, and we interview the authors of those books. And this week I'm very pleased to say that we have Franz Duval on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, The Bonobo and the Atheist in Search of Humanism Among the Primates. I found this book very interesting because it attempts and succeeds in introducing a lot of what has been learned about the evolution of what I would call rules in societies among primates generally to the question of human morality and the role that religion plays in the formation of moral ideas. These do bear on one another. It's kind of rare that a biologist like Franz touches on these issues, but I much applaud him for doing so, because the work that he's done with primates, especially bonobos and chimpanzees, is really relevant, as you'll find in the course of the interview. So it's a real, I've read his work as well, he's, he's the author of many books, and it's a real honor to talk to him. So Franz, I want to say uh, thank you for being on the show. I'm happy to be there. All right, Franz, could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? I am a Dutch-born biologist, trained in what we call etology. That's a word that's barely used anymore, but it's the the study of animal behavior. And it's the the study that comes out of biology. So so it's quite a bit different perspective than many psychologists who study animal behavior. Biologists usually have an evolutionary, very evolutionary view of things. Mm -hmm. And so that's my background. I moved to the U.S. um, 30 years ago, more than 30 years ago. First, uh, I stayed for 10 years in Wisconsin, uh, in Madison, Wisconsin, working with primates at the Primate Center there, and then I moved to here to Atlanta, Emory, where I'm a professor teaching in psychology, even though I'm a biologist, and I'm doing my studies at the Yerkes Primate Center, which is a very large primate center that has a, a field station, and that's my preferred place. They have an outside of Atlanta. It used to be really outside, but now it's surrounded by developments but they have a very large area where they keep primates outdoors, and that's where I do most of my work. Let me ask you this. How did you become involved in this discipline, and especially, especially sort of um, looking at the behavior of, uh, of primates? Well, I've always been interested in animals. I've always had animals. I still have a lot of fish, which I had as a kid also. And so I'm very interested in animals, and as a result, I moved into biology as a student uh, and uh, started studying birds and rats and at some point also chimpanzees, but I ended up with uh, Jan van Hoof, who's a professor in Utrecht, who's a specialist in facial expressions and emotions in, uh, in the primates, and um, he was just setting up at that time a new study on chimpanzees at a zoo, where they have a very large enclosure and a very large colony of chimpanzees, and so that's how I rolled into primatology. It, it could have been, I could have ended up also in birds and fish, I'm sure, and I would have been fascinated by them. But the primates, of course, have this big advantage that I use in my popular books is that, that you can connect with human behavior quite easily, much mm-hmm. more easily than when you study fish, for example. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And as I say, this is a young discipline, so you can probably trace your lineage very easily to Lorenz and Tinberg. 
Oh yeah, Tinbury. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure of indirect descendant of Tinbury. Yeah, yeah, that's very. That's it's really very interesting. And as I said, I've read your works before, and they're terrific, popular works on. I say popular works in the best possible sense on um, on really primate behavior. So uh, it really is an honor to talk to you today. Tell us why you wrote the Bonobo and the Atheist. Well, I've been writing about um, animal uh, mora- the origins of morality and, and animal equivalence for a long time, since, since the 90s, uh, especially after I started working on empathy and sympathy, and that's such a key component of human morality. If you, if you would think that humans have no capacity for empathy, then you know, there's no way we can be moral beings. So being interested in others and affected by the situation of others is a key element of morality. And so I got interested in, in the evolution of it, and, and Darwin was interested. Many other people have been interested in it. But then um, each time I talk about the origins of morality from a biological perspective, people will say, people who are believers, they will say, but that's very hard for us to accept because we think, of course, that morality comes from God. We think it comes from religion and from God. And so I've always kept religion out of it. I'm, I'm a non-believer myself, and, and I didn't think the religious angle was necessarily so necessary or so important. But since everyone keeps bringing it up all the time, and there's even people who say that if you accept evolution, you cannot accept morality, because if we, if we evolved um, and, and we're not created by an almighty God, we can basically do whatever we want to do, meaning that we would do bad things. And and so since that issue keeps coming up, I thought I really need to now tie my story on the evolution of morality to A, new data. There's a lot of interesting new data out now on primate behavior and so on. And B, religion. And so I need to talk about religion. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's where the, the term atheist in the title comes from, because I'm, uh, I, I think that it is possible to create a moral society that is not based in religion. I, I believe it is possible. But I also have some questions about it. I'm not 100% sure that, that religion is irrelevant. Mm-hmm. I think actually religion has quite some relevance. And, and as a biologist, I would say that if all the people in the world have religions or believe in the supernatural, we need to address that issue also. We cannot just say it is, it is irrelevant or, or it is nonsense or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things I really enjoyed about the book was the way that you framed the question and the sense in which you, uh, well, I'll put it in my own words, I found that you excluded uh, the book from what, what is the new atheism in the United States. And, and this is really of the shouting at people variety. And you, you've seen some of it yourself. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, the thing is that um, some, some uh, neo-atheists now are very upset with me <laughs> because they feel I'm too harsh on them and they are such sensitive people, you know. So I've been too hard on them by saying stop shouting and, and start thinking about uh, what a moral society would look like and why you are on earth. Uh, because I think the important questions in life are not answered by atheism. Uh, the, religion tries to answer them, and if we don't agree with their answers, then we need to come up with alternative answers. Right, you know, I agree. And, and that's, that's my goal in the book. Yeah, and you do a great job because, as you, as you point out, that the, uh, the new or neo-atheists and religious fanatics sort of mirror one another. Yeah. They, they're both and, dogmatists. Yeah, I'm from a country, you know, in the Netherlands, 60%, I believe, of the people call themselves non-believers. And so if, if I say in the Netherlands that I'm an atheist, no one blinks an eye. No one asks why or how or, or you go to hell or stuff like that. 
um, they, it's just a non-statement. Yeah. Because then the next question is like, okay, you're an atheist, but then what 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 is your goal in life, and how do you look at life? And what, mm-hmm. we have a word for that in Dutch, actually, of look at the, your view of life, which is a non-religious view. We have words for that. Mm-hmm. And so there's a long tradition in the Netherlands of humanism and actually of non-believing. Um, and so when I come to the U.S. and I see how fanatical the atheists are and, and, <laughs> and, and how similar, in a way, in their zeal to believers, I have trouble with that. And, yeah. and, and they feel misunderstood by me. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe I should not have been so harsh on them. But I feel that we need room to discuss these issues without the shouting. We, we, just <laughs> to, we need to sit down and have some debate about what is life all about and why would we want to be moral and where does it come from uh, without uh, necessarily uh, getting into some very heated argument. Yeah. Well, it makes a good show, you know, to bring Christopher Hitchens and Dinesh D'Souza together. <laughs> but other yeah, than so, that... So, so these atheists have been going around um, the country. It's not, not so much anymore, but it used to be like five, six years ago, they would be going around and, and having big debates at university where they would tear each other down. Um, <laughs> and it was all basically, they all knew each other's arguments. Yeah, right. right. It's a dog and pony show is what we would say. Yeah. So anyway, let's get to the meat of the book itself. I want to begin by talking about what is really some of the background to what you present in the book about the evolution of morality. And that is, the, the way I think about it is, um, it's really the work of, and I, I could be wrong here, but you do mention him, of Robert Trivers and this sort of notions of reciprocal altruism as a fundament for cooperation, because morality is really about cooperation. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it's, it's nice that you mention uh, Bob Trivers' work, because... The first time, and this was in the early 70s, uh, his article came out on reciprocal altruism, and, and my professor gathered a group of students together, and we were going to read it and discuss it. And that's really, for me, the first time, this is long ago, that I thought, well, hey, that's interesting. We can have evolutionary explanations of human behavior that are not necessarily based in violence, because everything, everyone was always talking at that time, in, this, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, about um, as soon as you talked about human evolution, it was about how aggressive we were and how violent we were and how this was an evolutionary trait. This was an instinct that we had. And here was a paper on cooperation because it was on reciprocal altruism and providing an, a, an interesting evolutionary scenario of how that could have evolved uh, without all the arm waving that, um, that was being done at the time. And so uh, Trevor's paper was tremendously important for me personally but I think also for the field, it was, it was a way of looking at things that was new and fresh. And, and, we start, and, and in addition, he did not sort of, um, in his paper, he did not avoid, avoid psychological issues. So he, apart from the evolutionary explanation, he also said, well, if you want to have reciprocal altruism, you need to have the, the following kind of psychology. Mm-hmm. So he was also bringing psychology into it. It, it was a very well-written and interesting paper, and it had an enormous impact on, on the thinking about human society and human cooperation. Mm-hmm. And I've, one of the lines in it, I've, I've read it, of course, and um, it really is one of those papers that kind of reorients an entire field. Although he did have predecessors, Hamilton and these guys, but the, the, there's a line in it that says, the um, evolutionary research into altruism is designed to remove the altruism from altruism. Yeah. yeah, that's a good line. That's a, <laughs> because that's altruism a, doesn't make sense evolutionarily, just pure altruism. Well, that's an interesting thing because I recently wrote a review paper on empathy 
And uh, the title of the paper is Putting Altruism Back into Altruism. <laughs> because I feel he went, he went a little bit far, yeah. and I know Trevor's very well, and yeah. so I, I can say this. He went a little bit too far in saying it that sharply, because there is genuine altruism that exists at a psychological level. Of mm-hmm. course, I agree with him and many biologists that the reason that altruism evolved in, in our species uh, is because it, it, it delivers benefits to you. Mm-hmm. So, so in a sense, it always gets something positive back to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, this, and this, when I say this is really the, I don't know if it's um, eliding too much to say this, is, this notion is the basis for morality among, I don't know about all species, but clearly among primates. And can you explain why that is and how this leads to the formation of rules about how you're going to behave toward one another in primate communities? Yeah, so if you have communities that are based on cooperation between unrelated individuals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's, that's, quite, that's the point, yeah. So that's quite different from, let's say, the social insects. The social insects really don't need a moral system and don't have, as far as I know, a moral system because uh, the cooperation sort of flows naturally from their kinship. And, and we biologists, we have good explanations for the kind of stuff. But if you get unrelated individuals... You get a society where, on the one hand, there may be cooperation, so you depend on that society. On the other hand, there is going to be competition because we are not related and, and our interests are not 100% overlapping. And so you get a lot of conflicts of interests that need to be resolved in order to have a cooperative society. And that's where morality, in humans at least, steps in and says, well, in order to be a good citizen in this society, you need to do the following things. And, and you need to work towards the common goal. And, and um, maybe you can pursue your personal interests. We, our moral systems don't deny your personal interests, but they need to be sometimes be subordinated to the collective interests. And, and so uh, the moral system sort of juggles all these um, different interests that are going around in society. And, and that's only possible because we have a system of reciprocal altruism, because that's really what it is based on, is that, I do something for you, you do something for me, we both do something for society, which then pays us back by being a cooperative whole, and so on. Mm-hmm. So, so it, it is from these that this sort of evolutionary logic that we have the formation of rules. And you're right to put the, obviously, the social insects aside, because they're basically all related to one another in, in one or another way, so their cooperation flows relatively naturally. How, how do you get there to, to morality per se? Do, for example, bonobos and chimpanzees have something like morality? Well, that's, I struggle with that in my book. You, you may notice that, is that sometimes I, I say many of these moral situations that we humans have or capacities, they, we can recognize them in other animals. And at other times I draw a line and say, well, there are certain things that humans do that animals don't do. And, and so basically I divide morality in the book in, in two parts. One is what I call one-on-one morality. That's the morality of social relationships, like we need to get along, and that means I do. I don't need to. I should not hit you over the head or, or rob you from your stuff because if we need to get along, I need to be careful with what I do with you. And and many animals have that kind of rule-based system in their relations. So, so for example, dogs when they play and fight, they they have certain rules that they follow. And Mark mm-hmm. Beckoff has written about that. Or in the in the primates. For example, primates, they reconcile after fights. So they may have a conflict of interest and they may get into a big fight. But 10 minutes later, they get together, they kiss and embrace, they groom each other, and they try to repair that relationship, which, which has a sort of normative structure in the sense that they, 
They have an idea of how their relationship should work, and they work on it. Mm-hmm. So this one-on-one morality of getting along with others and maintaining good relationships, I think is, is very widespread. It's not just limited to the humans. Mm-hmm. And then the second level I talk about, and that's more complicated, is what I call the community level, where you are not just interested in your own relationships, but you're interested in your community as a whole. Is my community fair? Uh, is my community peaceful? Uh, are we run by a guy that we actually should get rid of because he's too, ter- too, too, um, uh, what is it, too bullying and so on? And so we, we, we worry about the structure of our society and the structure of our government in, in, in small-scale societies I'm talking about now in, because in large-scale societies – things get even more complicated, and, and that certainly has no uh, equivalent in other primates. When you look at societies like a million people or several million people, uh, then you get other rules that come into play that, that we don't have equivalents for in, in, let's say, chimpanzees or bonobos. Mm-hmm. But in both cases, in the human case and in the bonobo or chimpanzee case, you have this kind of zero or non-zero-sum logic where if you cooperate with somebody under the right terms you're both going to benefit more than you would if you did whatever you were doing individually. Oh, that, that's very obvious. And so yes. this whole view of nature, of nature as being a place of pure competition and pure selfishness, yeah. where we all pursue our own goals at the expense of others, the doggy dog view of the world, th- that is so totally wrong because yeah. so many animals survive by cooperation. If you look at an anthill or you look at a, a baboon society or, or whales or, or elephants, so many animals survive by cooperation that, yes, they have constantly overlapping interests. Yeah. I mean, even in the case of, um, let's say, fish that school together, that is a form of cooperation. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and there's actually quite a bit of cooperation in fish. Yeah, and and uh, since I'm a big fish lover, I <laughs> follow that literature a little bit. And my students don't always understand because they, they the primates are of course supremely intelligent. Yeah, how you can look at fish, but fish actually have a lot of interesting behavior. Yeah, but in terms of cooperation with strangers, I always told my students when we discussed this kind of thing that humans are really virtuosic at this. We do it better than any other species. Is that true? Was I right about that? I'm not 100% convinced. There are some people who believe, and, and at the moment it's a very fashionable thing to say in, let's say, economics and anthropology and psychology. It's very fashionable to say we humans are super cooperators. There's actually there's a book out with that title. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Martin well, I, I, tr- I, tr- I tried it. Martin Novak? Yeah, he wrote a book, yeah. uh, Super Cooperators. Yeah, I know, I know Martin a little bit. Yeah. So, so yes, uh, there is this idea that we are excellent at this, which is true, I think, to some degree. But if you look at, for example, the hunting by killer whales or by hyenas, for that matter, or you look at um, the cooperation that you see in the primates, uh, either defending their territories or or hunting or sharing food, um, I personally think there's an enormous amount of continuity and and we humans are, are... very cooperative on a large scale. And that, that of course, we, we, we don't see except maybe in the social insects, but where you have thousands of people mm-hmm. working on the railroad, for example, mm-hmm. which, which takes a tremendous amount of organization. And, and that kind of cooperation we are excellent at. Um, but in the day-to-day social life, that kind of cooperation, I'm not sure we're that special. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Especially when we're driving. Well, no, actually, when we're driving, we're pretty cooperative. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So anyway. It depends on where you are. Yeah, I guess it does depend on where you are. I know that here in Massachusetts, people say that when you get in your car, you're part of the food chain. So okay. <laughs> the, the, um, so let's turn to religion now. Um, and again, you're not exactly a fan of the, 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 uh, the new atheism. But you, you make a point in the book that many people believe, especially in the United States, that morality, that is the system of rules that tell us what is right and wrong vis-a-vis one another, is the product of some sort of divine revelation. Um, let, me, let me ask a question about that. Uh, and, and this is, a li- I guess, you know, I, that's just not been my experience. I do know a lot of religious people. And, uh-huh. and they will say, yes, in fact, uh, there are uh, rules of human behavior. And they did come from God, but not originally from God, if you see what I mean. They, they, were, they, were, they were cleaned up by God in intervention. What do, you, what do you mean? Is that we were made moral by God? You yeah. Mean? We were made moral by God. That is, we, we knew to, to, to act in a certain way toward one another, but we were constantly uh, f- falling out. We weren't uh, behaving appropriately, and then um, some rules were imposed or given to us. I, guess, yeah. I suppose it doesn't really matter, but... They were handed to us at the mountaintop. That's exactly yeah. right, yes. Yeah, and so the, the Ten Commandments... Uh, I, I have a lot of trouble with what I call top-down morality, mm-hmm. where either either it's the Ten Commandments or it's the utilitarian principle or it is the golden rule, where you say there's, there's, there's one set of rules that, that sort of covers everything. Mm-hmm. I believe a lot of morality comes from within, uh, and, and it, it, would, it would be almost impossible to tell people to be fair to each other if we didn't already have some tendency to fairness mm-hmm. or to tell people to care about each other, if we didn't already have a tendency to care about each other. So for example, you go to a bunch of sharks and let's say the sharks can talk uh, and you talk to them and you try to explain to them, you should uh, take care of each other. That's not going to go over well with sharks <laughs> because they, that's not their nature to take care of each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, but we humans, we have that tendency. And so what the moral system does is it built on top of that? It says, well, okay, we have these tendencies and the sort of natural tendencies of our species, and we're going to encourage these ones and we're going to discourage those ones. Mm-hmm. So there are certain ones that we, that we favor and other ones that we disfavor. And I'm saying that's what the moral system does. And so it works with human nature, and, and a lot of that human nature that I'm talking about is also present in other primates. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, I quite agree with that. I think that we do have, you know, Adam Smith, a theory of moral sentiments. Uh, he, he was right, and I think that Darwin was right, that we do have in us uh, certain ten- – for example, it's basically been demonstrated, and I think it's commonsensical to think that we do have a kind of preference for, for equality or fairness. Uh, mm-hmm. that we, we have a desire for – and it, 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 we just had a fellow on the show – uh, who talked about a, a kind of inherent desire for what is really revenge? That is, that when you're wronged, you want to be you want to wrong someone in equal measure. Uh, and, it's hard yeah, and, to get and so, on the fairness side, of course, we do experiments on our primates. Yeah. Uh-huh. There's, there's now this little video clip that is all over the internet uh, of, of an experiment that we did with capuchin monkeys, mm-hmm. uh, and and so that, that that video has gone viral, and anyone who looks at fairness and monkeys will find it. Yeah. Uh, what we did is we put two monkeys side by side and we reward them differently for the same task. Now, if they get the same rewards, uh, whether it's a good or bad reward, it doesn't really matter. Um, uh, they, they perform perfectly fine. But if one of them gets a much better thing like a grape and the other one gets a poor reward like um, a, a cucumber piece, then uh, the one who gets the cucumber starts to protest and starts to react to it. 
And, and so there's a very strong emotional reaction to the unfairness of the situation. And then recently, we even went much further. We played the ultimatum game with chimpanzees. Uh, ultimatum game is what we use in humans to test for fairness. And so you give one person, let's say, $20, and you say you can split it with, with your friend, but your friend has to accept the split. And so you, we usually give under those circumstances, we give 50-50 or 60-40 to the friend. Um, and and we, t- we played it with chimpanzees and with children, and we got very much the same results. And now I have reached a point uh, in thinking about fairness that if you ask me what is the difference between the human sense of fairness and the sense of fairness of a chimpanzee, that I don't really know anymore what the difference is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. So I, I, I guess one so we have these drives that seem to suggest certain moral rules, um, and there are people that believe those moral rules are uh, from on high, from some divinity. Now, let's just be clear. You reject that notion. They are, they are not from on high. We are, yes. we are imagining that. I also reject the notion even that there are uh, anything that top-down type of morality. Mm-hmm. Well, in the sense that, that the philosophers, after the Enlightenment, of course, they started saying, no, it doesn't come from God. It comes from reasoning and logic. And we reason ourselves towards certain moral principles. And, and so we discuss amongst ourselves uh, what would it be an unfair society or a fair society. And, and then we settle on a particular uh, moral rule. Uh, even, even that view, which, which takes sort of God out of the equation, even that view I find um, not in agreement with the way I look at morality. And so I'm, I'm much closer to, to David Hume, who believed in the moral sentiments, as mm-hmm. he called it, at the basis of morality. And, and yes, at some point we, we reach a point where we discuss and justify our behavior, where we do get into so, sort of top-down morality, but that's secondary. Mm-hmm. It starts with how you're raised and, and how you feel about your society and about your fellows, and, and that's where morality really comes from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Uh, I guess I see, when you say it comes from within, you mean these are sort of evolved sentiments that everyone has at birth, and then they're modulated, I suppose, by what we would call culture. Yeah, they're modulated by the society we live in, because I don't think biology specifies the moral rules. Mm-hmm. Um, th- that, would be, that would be an unacceptable statement even, because then moral rules would have to be the same, I suppose, across the globe right. for everybody, for all cultures, all religions, everybody which clearly is not the case. Right. And also we know that morality changes over time. At the mm-hmm. moment we have all these debates about gay marriage, about the death penalty, about abortion. And I'm sure 25 years from now we have different opinions about this. We have moved on to some other issues. Yeah, it's funny, it's funny you mention that because I often mention on the show, uh, I'm a historian myself, and I, I like to think of the things that we believe now that in 100 years people will think are barbaric. And I think one of them, I, the only one I can really come up with is zoos. I think in 150, yeah. 200 years, people will look back on us and say, they kept animals in cages. <laughs> How well, barbaric. <laughs> but, but of course, I'm a big zoo lover. Yeah. In the sense that there are good zoos and bad zoos, yeah. I always say. Right, right. But there in are event, zoos they, that don't put them in cages, but put them in, in yeah. large surfaces. Right. They, they, and so yeah. they, they, do, they do change. You're absolutely right. And one of the things I remember from Smith, this is because it's been decades since I read this, I think he gives the example of um, what we would call... Um, um, well, they're Aleuts or, or Eskimos or something, and he says they practice this, they practice um, child exposure, basically infanticide. Mm-hmm. And he gives this as an example of the, the, of the way in which morality can be modulated by culture. 
and 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 it's clearly the case that it is. But but, but that, biology, that's not just that's not just culture. That's also ecology, of yes, course. Yes, certainly. Yeah. If you have a very harsh environment in which you can barely keep your chin above the water, you know, it's very difficult. Then you have to think twice um, taking on a new child, or you have to think mm-hmm. twice sure. taking along your old parents um, that can barely walk anymore. And so in that kind of environment, you get a different perspective on things if you want to survive, at least, and all, all of us want that. Yeah, sure. That's um, right. And so um, you're going to modify your system, and that doesn't make the behavior good or bad. And, and It makes just the behavior maybe necessary under those circumstances. Right, exactly, exactly. So, I mean, I, mean, I agree with that completely. The, the hmm, how to put this. So I guess I would say that it's true that uh, – are let's just use an old-fashioned word instincts toward um, behavior toward other others like us and maybe even the animal kingdom um, are uh, they, they are formed by evolution and they do not determine uniquely specific moral rules but they do set parameters I mean for example we can look at there's this very interesting book I'm sure you know about it called Human Universals and I forget the name of the guy that wrote it but he goes and catalogs what he thinks are just hundreds and hundreds of human universals and you know some of them are 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 moral in nature, you know, like you uh, will not kill your brother. And apparently in every society, there's this sort of rule. You won't kill your brother or your sister. Um, now that doesn't mean they don't ever do it, but there's a rule about it. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think it's correct to say that, that, that biology sets parameters on what is permissible. You, how would you respond to that? Yeah, I got into this debate a little bit with Peter Singer, who, um, who believes very strongly in utilitarian principles like the the greater happiness for all. Uh-huh. Um, actually, Sam Harris, the, the neo-atheist, also believes in that principle, and, and his book, The Moral Landscape, is very much advocating that as the basic principle that should underlie all of morality. And um, it's such an unbiological view. So, so I get into the, the, the restrictions of the human species because it is a view without loyalties, so, so if, if the greater good of the greater number of people is my goal in the moral system, then my own children really don't count as anything more than, than your children or anybody mm-hmm. else's children. And so I don't have a special obligation to my children or, or f- to my wife, for that matter. If, if I can make another woman happier um, <laughs> than my wife, so to speak, I should probably do that because I, I'm increasing the happiness in society by doing that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, it is a view without social loyalties, and that's a view that really doesn't jibe at all with, with what we know about humans and other animals. Even plants have loyalty. So if you put two plants from the same pot of seed in, in a pot, they will be growing together. If you take plants from different origins so that they're not related to each other, you put them in the same pot, their, their root systems start competing with each other. Mm-hmm. There's experiments on this. And so even in plants, we have these loyalties to each other. And certainly in all animals, loyalty is such a big part of animal society and human society. And so to devise a principle that sort of denies these um, biological features of our species, uh, I find that hard to swallow. And so, yes, the moral systems need to work with what we are and how we are. uh, And and recognize all our tendencies, So, for example, our moral systems recognize our sexual jealousies, for example, as, as a problem in society. And so they have, we have rules of dealing with that. So we recognize the, the, the human species the way it is. 
and we design a moral system that deals with that species. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you're precisely right about the fact that these general moral systems, and I would include the Ten Commandments uh, right next to utilitarianism, they do not take into account uh, what are our natural predispositions. And we had a fellow on the show a few weeks ago named Stephen Asma who wrote a book called Against Fairness. And oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've read that book. It's actually a very fun book. Yeah, it is really it's a like- fun book. And one of the things he points out, and it's precisely the example you give, it's like, you know, it, it, it's one thing to say in the abstract that your children are no more valuable than anybody else. Mm-hmm. But that's just not true. <laughs> because no, your children are more valuable than anybody else to you. No, and, 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 we, we, and we would not want it to be different. No, we that's, wouldn't want it to be different. That's the same. That's right. if, if, if all the children in the world are of equal value to me, why would I sit next to a sick child for the whole night and, and stay up or, right. or make sure that they do their homework and stuff like that? Right. Because I have no special commitments anymore. And right. so this utilitarian principle sort of throws out commitments, which are, which are the glue of our society. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I think one of the things that your book suggests is that it's really not the idea that you should think hard about what you should do relative to your neighbors, which is the problem. It's the abstraction of these ideas. And this is kind of a linguistic function because humans can universalize in a way that chimpanzees and bonobos cannot, you know, we can say thou shall not kill, Mm -hmm. but in fact, sometimes you do need to kill. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, if we're going to be invaded by some country, um, we're going to kill. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, right. And so this also has this unrealistic view of not only human nature, but also life because, you know, life will present you with a situation that will be an exception to your rule. Um, and so these absolutes uh, kind of lead us astray, I think. And um, But it's difficult to imagine what we would have other than those absolutes. You know, we say, for example, in our liberal democracy that laws are absolute, even though we know they're in fact not. Um, you know, if you, if, you, if you go over the speed limit, you're breaking the law, period, end of story. Um, so, yeah, but we, we have a tendency, especially, of course, uh, the philosophers have a tendency to sit back in there armchair and think about a, a general principle that applies to everyone equally and so on. And, and they write beautiful books about it. Um, so, for example, philosophers were very upset by our fairness experiment with the monkeys because they, they had, of course, explained fairness and justice in very abstract intellectual terms and had never thought about the possibility that a monkey might have a sense of fairness. And so they, they were quite upset and, and um, uh, they they criticized the experiment and they said it is impossible uh, that that a monkey can do that kind of thing. But but now uh, the fairness experiment has been replicated with dogs and with crows mm-hmm. and certainly with chimpanzees um, and very young children for that matter who are also not very philosophical. Those young children and so um, they have to admit now that that this whole reaction that we observe is is actually very deeply ingrained and doesn't require an enormous amount of thinking power. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I quite agree with what you say about this philosophical tendency to write um, propositions with other propositions, that is to make them consistent in a system and not write them with human nature. I mean, I'm reminded of I had a class as an undergraduate where we read John Rawls' Theory of Justice, and I, you know, we read it very carefully, and it all worked very well together. And I remember the last, the, you know, we were talking about it at the end, and uh, uh, we all kind of agreed this was great, but it had no bearing on life. <laughs> you know, no, it, no. It, it, I've, I've read that book, and, and <laughs> that was not long after I read Bob Trevor's um, Reciprocal Altruism, and, and I kept thinking, 
doesn't he know anything about animals? Yeah, he, many of the tendencies he described actually uh, are being studied in animals. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I no, it was. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable of a way in which uh, sort of this academic, um, you know, stovepiping that is separation of disciplines doesn't do anybody any good. Uh, because had he read that material, I imagine he wouldn't have written that book the way that he did. So, and he was obviously a brilliant man. So well, it's, a, it's a brilliant book. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So, so let's talk a little bit about re- religion again. So let me ask a kind of open-ended question. A lot of people in the United States believe, are believers. They believe in a God or some sort of spiritual presence or something like that. What do they get out of it? How, how, how do you think about those people? There's, there's different reasons why people may be believing. Um, I think a lot of people get consolation and and some sense of community out of believing. So that's a sort of Dirkheimian view of religion, is that you get social benefits out of being part of a group that has all shared beliefs. Some, other, some people believe because they are troubled by mor- their mortality and they, they want to believe in an afterlife. Uh, other people feel that you can only have a moral society if you have a, a strict belief system that tells you how to behave. And so, so I think people have a variety of reasons why they enter religion and feel attracted to religion. But it's a very natural thing for the human species to do because we do it all over the world. Every, there's, there's religions everywhere. And, and children very easily are integrated into religions. Whereas in, in my book, I contrast it a little bit with science. You get your PhD when you're over 30 usually, and it takes an enormous amount of effort to do science. And so science comes much less naturally to us than religion. And, and I think people get an enormous amount of benefits from being religious, and there's actually studies now on the health benefits of being religious, which are probably related to the social benefits. Um, and, and in the American situation, I always believe that um, the mobility of Americans is part of the picture in the sense that if you move from New York to Los Angeles and you're part of a particular church, you go to Los Angeles to that church and immediately you're surrounded by people who accept you mm-hmm. and who have the same belief system mm-hmm. and, and you're integrated in that community quite easily. And, and so if you have a, a fragmented mobile society like the U.S. has, uh, it's probably a big advantage to be part of a church or, or part of a, a religious community. Whereas in, in Europe, people are much more uh, sedentary, so to speak. They stay at the same place for long times. And, and so that's a less important factor in, in Europe, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I can tell you, honestly, I'm part of a, what I would call a spiritual community. I don't know if it's a church or not. And I benefit in all those ways from it. Um, I can go to any city and I can meet people who are part of this community. And, uh, you know, I do get to interact with them a lot. And they're pretty nice folks. And uh, I have to say, we don't talk a lot about God, <laughs> really at all about God. <laughs> but, but No, and, and, that's, and that's maybe if the function is mainly social. Yeah. Then, then the belief system is a sort of secondary aspect. It's, it's still, of course, part of the story. But the social aspect is so important. Yeah. And I think that's really true for many people. Yeah. Well, the social aspect is important. But I want to um, uh, talk a little bit about other aspects. And, one, and this does, I think, separate us from bonobos and chimpanzees. Is that, you know, we have this ability to, uh, to seek meaning in our environment, to wonder why we are the way we are and what we are supposed to be doing, supposed being understricken there. And I don't know, at a certain point in my life, I found this kind of terrifying uh, because I, I faced, you know, kind of Kierkegaardian um, meaninglessness. Like, what the hell am I doing and why am I doing it? And maybe it was my own personal deficiency that I couldn't just come up with, well, I'm serving mankind or something like that. But there were just these ultimate questions that I had no answer for and I felt sort of lost. And it's not as if I sought answers in this community, but 
I sort of just accepted the answers, just said, mm-hmm. well, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to believe this now. And I find it, you know, it was very comforting for me at least. And it helped me a lot sort of uh, realize yeah. what I was supposed to be doing. Yeah, so I believe that for scientists, especially in the natural sciences, um, science takes a little bit of that, um, uh, that function. Mm-hmm. Not that science answers these questions. I don't think science will answer the question why you are here, what is a good life, why should you lead a good life. I, I don't think science answers those questions. Those are uh, that's a different. Science answers questions about how things work or how things originated. Um, but you know, the scientific community as a whole ties a lot of people together. I'm part of that community. We have we have our theories that we either believe in or don't believe in, uh, and we we gather evidence, and we are constantly connected with sort of the larger whole of the world, with the universe. If if you're an astronomer, or with the natural world, if you're a biologist, and so science, in a way, fulfills some of the functions that religion may have mm-hmm. for other people. Mm-hmm. Um, even even though the enterprise is quite different and is, is actually quite, uh, less cooperative than religion because science is competitive. <laughs> in sense, if you have a theory and I have a theory and there are different theories, we're going to be competitors yeah. and we're going to collect different kinds of information to support our views. And so science is quite competitive in many ways, but that's the good thing about science is that, and that's why it moves forward yeah. because we keep correcting each other. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you talk a little bit in the, well, we discussed this just a second ago about uh, the, the way in which things change. And, and my impression is that religion as such is becoming much more what I would call therapeutic today. That basically all religions are evolving toward a kind of quasi-secular Buddhism, one that thinks a lot about your spiritual condition and wonders about it and how to keep it on a kind of even keel. And therefore the kind of what I would say are the metaphysical aspects of it, you know, does God have a brown beard or a white beard or any of that stuff? Um, they, they kind of get set aside. Well, that would, be, that would be a great improvement, if that's true. Well, I think, you know, again, I can only speak from my experience in my own spiritual sort of community, and that is that we really think a lot about how we can be healthy so we can do good. Uh, yeah. but, that's, but, that's partly a function of the fact that we now live in societies with multiple religions. Yeah. It, it used to be, of course, that, let's say, in a country like France or whatever, 100% of the people are Catholic. Mm-hmm. So if 100% of the people are Catholic, then the cardinals and the bishops rule the place, basically. Uh, your society is, is Catholic through and through. The government needs to be Catholic, everything. And, and, and we know in, for example, Islam, there are certain countries that are run like that. Um, but if you get a pluralistic society where you have multiple religions, you have Protestants and Catholics and Muslims and Jews, and you have all sorts of people that you bring together in your big cities especially, you need to start thinking differently about religion because one religious leader cannot dictate everyone how to behave. And, mm-hmm. and so you start to compare religions and, and maybe have some uh, relativity about uh, your belief system. Mm-hmm. And, and so you start thinking differently. And, and you're right. Maybe it becomes more philosophical uh, at that point than religious. Mm-hmm. I guess I would say it becomes sort of a combination of, you know, it's a strange thing, a, what I would call a spiritual practice. And, and Buddhism is the great example because some forms of Buddhism have no notion of a higher power or God or anything like that at all. They are really all about ending what ending human suffering. That, that's mm-hmm. what it's about. And it's very therapeutic in that way. Um, and, and so it's hard to characterize it as a religion in, in that sense you just mentioned, that it's really about dealing with things because mm-hmm. life is not fair, uh, you're going to die, and uh, you're going to suffer a lot 
you know, while you're on the earth, how are you going to deal with that? And uh, we know that getting a new car doesn't help for very long. So, uh, and so the, the, the Dalai Lama has now written a book, I believe it's called Beyond Religion or something. Or? Uh-huh, yeah, well, you know, this notion that really uh, these, these ideas, these sort of mental practices should serve us rather than us serving them. Um, it's, 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 very, um, it's a very comforting idea to me. I like it quite a bit. Uh, but but you know, what would you tell, what, what do you think that people who are religious will get out of your book? Or what do you want them? Let's ask that question. What do you want them to get out of your book? Well, the main thing, the main message is that morality is older than religion. Morality came first, and, and our ancestors of, let's say, half a million years ago, I'm pretty sure, they, they had an understanding of how you should behave, and they would punish people who did not behave right, and, and they would encourage in their children and everything uh, the, the right kind of behavior. And so they, they had the beginnings of a moral system. And religion, our current religions, they're just two or 3,000 years old. They're really not that old for the biologists. Mm-hmm. And, and they were tacked onto that system. And they probably served to amplify certain tendencies or to support or codify certain tendencies in the moral system. And so they, they may be important, especially in large-scale societies where it is so hard to enforce a moral system without religion. And so religion may be an instrument that we started using in large-scale societies to enforce the moral system that we couldn't do otherwise. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, in the book, I sometimes wonder what would happen if we remove religion altogether from society. And I'm not 100% convinced that that would be such a great thing. And, and so I'm, I'm a bit worried about that. And that's, of course, an important question. If you want to strive for a completely secular society... It becomes an important question. Is like, uh, how would it look and how would it function? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is a very difficult question. I quite agree with you historically that the major religions seem to appear when we, they definitely appear after agriculture and uh, probably immediately after cities were formed. And I think that the one of the functions that they served, in addition to answering these great questions, was in fact a kind of pacification so everybody gets on the same page in terms of where these rules come from. And they don't come from men. They come from God. So that kind of cuts down on jealousy. Uh, and then, you know, it is decided by whomever, princes and priests, that this is how we, whoever we is, are going to live. Mm-hmm. And, and they, are, they are very good at pacifying, I think, um, large-scale societies in that way because it, it provides a common moral code. It comes from someplace else. Uh, yeah, so the, the, the primates, and the, since they live in groups of maybe 100 um, they don't face that problem at all. Right, so, so for them, if you if you have a hundred members in your society, we can all keep an eye on each other. Right. And I know how you behave. You know how I behave. And and if you're not behaving right, um, I will enlist the support of the community to tell you that you're not right. And and so that's how we keep an eye on each other. We have reputations and and, and exchanges and and discussions and so on. So, so in that sense. Human morality probably, when we lived in small-scale societies, was, was actually not that different from, from what you see in the primate societies, where also rules are enforced um, by the members of the society. Um, but when we move to societies of several thousand or several million even, that whole system is going to collapse. It, it cannot be maintained. Mm-hmm. That, that's not going to work because I cannot know a million people. Right. And, and so uh, then something else comes into play. And so that's a very interesting question for me. Uh, it's much more interesting to ask why do we have religions and what function do they serve 
than to go against religion and say it's all bad. Yeah, no, that, that, is, that is completely uninteresting. The, um, the, yeah, not to mention contentious. But I mean, it's interesting to think about what a, a, a secular society would look like that is one without this, I guess I'd call it a metaphysical notion of, of, of a power that um, gives morality to humans and then mandates it. Uh, because I, I guess one thing I might, one thought that immediately occurs to me is that in such a society, the problems that are recognized by these spiritual practices like Buddhism are not going to go away. You know, you, there is still, the Buddha would say, there will still be suffering, even when there is no God. And you're going to have no, to deal and, with that. And, and the big fear is, of course, Freud wrote a book at, at the end of his life, he wrote a book about he doesn't believe in God right. and since religion is not good. But at the end, he, he worries what happens if you remove religion. Because we humans, we have a tendency to follow leaders who tell us what to do. And um, so he was worried if, if religion disappears, maybe, maybe something else comes in its place yeah. that is going to enlist all these same mechanisms, and it may not be so good. Mm-hmm. And, and if you look at what happened in communist societies where they, they try to eliminate religion, and, and communism became sort of the new religion, was that so much better than the old religion? I'm not sure it was. No, it was and so, um, We humans have this odd tendency that we probably will never get rid of. Um, and so we need to know how to fill that in, so to speak. Yeah, but I think it's a necessary, it's a concomitant of, of consciousness, really, of the ability to reason and ask why. I mean, mm-hmm. we will, I don't know, I'm common, I, I'm fond of saying these days that, uh, to my friends in the spiritual community, that uh, whoever or whatever created us did not really take into account our happiness. Because, <laughs> because it really, you know, you look at, you know, it really is true. Most everybody is miserable at some point in their lives. The rich people are, the poor people are, the well people are, the sick people are, the Americans are, the Dutch are, everybody has mm-hmm. to suffer. And so, you know, whether it's evolution or God, they clearly didn't have our happiness in mind when they made us because suffering is universal and, and well, we have to find some way to deal with it. That's the old view of the, we live in a valley of tears. Right. That's exactly <laughs> right. That's exactly right. And you know, I think there's a lot of truth in that. And I guess I would say that in an evolved secular society, you know, let's say the Netherlands in 100 years where nobody goes to church or believes in, in God, they're still going to face these problems. Oh, they, they're going to face it. And, and I noticed when I was last in Holland, because I promoted my book uh, in the Netherlands also, um, I noticed that, that there's many questions. And, and yes, the Dutch are moving towards a secular society, but they certainly not um, naively that they think that's going to solve all the problems. Yeah, that. yeah. I mean, I think this was one of the great, you know, this this is one of the great problems of Marxism is that he he threw the baby out with the bathwater, so to say. There's a lot of value in religion, a ton of value in religion, and and I think I, that comes out in your book that you know it's a, it's actually a, quite a good thing for humans. Um, so you know this, this sort of strident atheism that you see, it just doesn't. I, I think you can say the same thing about it that you can say about the the kind of um, the utilitarian view of, of morality, that it just doesn't take into account human nature. Yeah, but in, in the end, of course, in the book, I also, um, I'm not completely on the side of religious people either, in the sense that I, I don't believe they can claim morality as their invention. Right, yeah, that's clear. Yeah, no, that's absolutely I think that that's going too far. And so they should have a, a bit more modest position in society, so yeah. to speak. 
Yeah. Again, I, maybe it's just the people that I interact with here in the United States, and other, I, I don't know a lot of people that say that. That say, you know, uh, that, that, that that morality per se is a is a product of of divine intervention. In uh, fact, uh, I, those, I, people, those people do exist. I'm sure they exist. I'm not saying they don't exist. I just haven't heard a lot of it. And I, you know, I, I live in academic circles and in places where people are, are yes, more so, secular. So recently, Ben Carson, uh, the the darling of the Republican Party at the moment, a neurosurgeon. He recently said something like, uh, if you accept evolution, you reject ethics. Yeah, if you silly. accept evolution, basically you say, you, I can live any way I want. I, I don't need a moral guide. Yeah, that's silly. And, and so people say these things, um, and even educated people. So Yeah, that's, that's an obviously – that's a, not a well-considered position. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and, and yeah, I mean, I, I, so that's what you want people to get out of your book. What do you think people will get out of your book? How do you think it will be? How, when was it published? I'm sorry. It was published this uh, year, wasn't it? No, it was published uh, only like six weeks ago. Yeah. So. so have you gotten any sort of feedback on it? How has it been received? Do you know? I mean, are you getting hate mails or love mails or whatever you get? Yeah, I, I, do, get, I do get both. Um, I, there's some atheists who are upset with me because they, they feel they're misunderstood. Um, religious people have not reacted very strongly to it. Uh, I, I get also people who, who love the book and, and say – it's exactly the sort of view that they have of things. Uh, and so I, I get a mixture of things. The reviews are also generally positive, I would say. So, so um, the reaction is good. And, and I, what I want is people to think about these issues, not, to, not just to think about the origins of morality, but also how it interacts with religion. And, and that's exactly what's happening at the mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think one of the things that comes from the book that v- very clearly is Simply the suggestion that it's probably best not to be dogmatic about these things. <laughs> yeah, dogmatic is always bad. Yeah, and way, in the dogmatism means that you you shut off your your thinking right. part of your brain. Right. So yeah, and you know I, I don't know about other religious traditions, but in the Christian tradition, I was raised a Lutheran. I'm not really a Lutheran anymore, but we talked about the doctrine of um, continuing revelation. God, uh-huh. God is always revealing Himself, so there's no reason to stick with what was. Because God is always revealing himself. This is what Lutherans will sometimes say. And lots of Christians will. So they have an easy out if they want to change things. Um, yeah. And I think, and I hope that they do in many cases. But I want to thank you for writing such a, a, a fascinating book, Franz. And we've been talking with Franz de Waal about his book, Bonobo and the Atheist, In Search of Humanism Among the Primates. Uh, Franz, I want to conclude the interview by asking our traditional final question. And that is, what are you working on now? Oh, <laughs> I'm still working on cooperation and reciprocity and altruism in the primates, but I'm I'm thinking um, at the moment very much about uh, a work on on the emotions. You know, in in the human literature, of course, emotions are everywhere. You go to a psychology conference; half the talks, it seems, are about the emotions and the emotional brain and so on, the emotional intelligence and so on. But in animals, there's still quite a bit of neglect of the emotions. And, and that's partly because there was a taboo on it. Uh, Skinner and his friends, um, they didn't like us to talk about emotions in animals. And, and scientists are very reluctant uh, around that topic. And, and I think it's a, it is, of course, an old topic. It's nothing new. Um, but there's a lot of new evidence actually around. And so I'm thinking of doing something on the emotions in humans and animals. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I wish you luck on that work, and we will have you back on the show when you write that book, if you will allow us. I'm Marshall Poe, and I am the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I want to thank everybody for listening into this fascinating interview, but I especially want to thank Franz DeWall for joining us today. Thank you, Franz. You're welcome. Okay, bye-bye. 